Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 260th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Deanna Begtoll, Joe Harris, and Cody flores Harigi. I'm Matt Allo. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have Andy Strayhorn on the podcast. He is a cinematographer of many cool things, most recently Lethal Weapon on Fox and 911 Lone Star, the Ryan Murphy show, and it's fun. We haven't really talked to a network TV, like big procedural type of cinematographer before right yeah yeah no it's it's really fun i think he offers a perspective that both i think indie filmmakers and up-and-comers will relate to certainly he kind of came from that world but also he really sheds light on the perspective of these kind of big procedural action directors right you know like you mentioned it's like he did a lot of the weapon he's now on lone star so like we talk about how to shoot explosions, stunts, all of that red tape, you know, is really fascinating. The explosions thing was really interesting to me because I know you've shot like a f- some flamethrower stuff. I've shot some sparks and little little mishaps, but I don't think I've actually filmed many explosions or fires. Have you? Pyro? Uh, yeah. Well, the flamethrower, we had like a full bonfire and like an honest to goodness flamethrower. It was hot. It was scary. And I think like the way that one approaches pyro is is unique and specific. And I think Andy does a really wonderful job of shedding light on just the thought process. You know, it's it none of it is rocket science, but you are you do have to think like, oh, like what's gonna make this look the best? Because I only am gonna get one shot at it, most likely. Yeah, and I think that's most people's instincts like, oh, we're gonna blow up this building, we're gonna blow up this model, we're gonna blow this thing up, we're only gonna get one shot, let's put as many cameras on it as possible. GoPro, let's get slow mo, let's do all this stuff. But the thing that he cares more about than the one shot aspect of it is the light exposure aspect of it. Exposure, sure. Which would be easy to underthink, you know? Yeah, because an explosion is a fire. Usually, especially if you're shooting it at night, it drastically changes the lighting on the entire set, and it is very, very bright. 
And so if you want it to not blow out, you have to expose very darkly, but then you won't see anything before the explosion. And he talks a lot about that. So I think it's a, it's a fun challenge to overcome. And also even just the experience of what it feels like to be around an explosion. Sometimes a little overexposure feels visceral. You know, so being strategic about what cameras are exposed in what ways and thinking about the way that the explosion will relate to the edit, I think was really masterful and insightful and, um, you know, something that you only get from experience. The one other thing I found really interesting about Andy talking about their approach to filming 911 Lone Star was that he said the camera approach when they are filming fires is that the camera should feel like it's a member of the, the team that is putting out the fire. And I think we, especially the more pretentious of us, like the ones that went to USC film school and all that stuff, think of network television as like this real formulaic thing. Everyone, you just kind of plug any DP in, any director in, and the the show kind of just makes itself. But it's fun to hear that there's actually a lot more intention and creativity and a strive to not just do like a long lens master and then like, you know, two Steadicam shots or whatever. They're really trying to make art that happens to be very commercial at the same time. So it's fun hearing Andy's approach to that and his whole attitude about the whole thing. I think that's why oftentimes shows like that will have a consistent DP across. Or I think in, in Andy's case, I think he, he's one of two and they are kind of prepping and then rolling into it. He breaks it down for us. But, but uh, that consistency goes a long way towards being able to implement kind of a broader vision for what the show needs to be that also will translate across multiple storylines and different types of characters and different scenarios so that it all feels cohesive like it's all you know one great show but also gives you room and latitude to to play and experiment and lean into what's particular and special about each scene that you're shooting yeah no it's really cool but before we talk to andy we are going to actually answer one quick listener question from one of the patrons that was mentioned at the opening of this episode deanna begtoll So Deanna says that she loves our wonderful podcast. I can't agree with her more on that. And she says that she's interested in editing. She has some experience in DaVinci Resolve and Premiere Pro, but she'd like to master an editing tool. She says, I'm confused as to which the most widely used or in-demand tool is and whether or not I should look into getting some kind of certification or is just a reel better. And if a reel is the answer, should the reel consist of my own content in place of paid work or should it have both? Thank Deanna for the question. Um, so I thanks, Deanna, for the question. For once, we might have kind of a straightforward for answer. We might have yeah, I, I think there's a few answer. a few parts to break down, though, first. So there's the question of, like, do I need a certificate or not or any sort of accreditation? And then also what the industry standard is in terms of uh, what to cut on, what to master, and then what should a reel look like? Those are the three parts, I feel like. So let's start with accreditation. Oren, have you ever asked to see or thought about whether or not someone is an accredited editor in any, of any sort? Yeah, of course. That's the first thing I ask someone is like, what? let me see your certification. Please fax that over to me on my fax machine. Um, <laughs> no, of course not. No one. I don't think anyone cares about that. Well, it, it, you know, it it's tricky because I think that there are a lot of schools and programs out there, you know, even I feel like I can remember... Apple used to have an accreditation program for Final Cut, right? Where you would go through the class, you'd spend a bunch of money, and you'd kind of step-by-step go through that stuff. And I I totally understand where people are coming from with that question because if I were to, say, want to become some other sort of professional, 
you do have to have some sort of certification, whether you're a bartender or a dental hygienist or, you know, an engineer. Like there's all sorts of different, you know, societies built on accreditation, whether it's a trade school or a college, right? And so it makes sense to be like, well, yeah, I want to be an editor, so I should go to school for editing. That said, the industry typically, in our experience, runs on referrals. And so I don't, I've never seen an editor's resume even. I will maybe IMDB them or look at their website. But for the most part, I work with editors one of two ways. Either it's a referral. I take a look at their reel. I'm like, okay, this is great. And more more importantly, I'm looking at the filmmakers that they've worked with. Do I know them? Do I know their work? And then the other thing is sometimes I'll just get introduced to them through the company that I'm working for. Sometimes it'll be like, oh, you know, I'm working at this commercial company and they've got a person that's in-house or or someone that they like to work with they really come strongly endorsed and, and that's how i would meet them basically but so i've never looked at a resume yeah i think the certification thing is like a relic of the old days when not everyone had access to all the editing tools on their computer at home it was proof that you went and actually learned things and i think it's still valuable for things like i'm a mac certified repair serviceman person you know like, I know how to open up your computer and I know what the pieces are doing and I can talk to Apple about the issues. But in terms of editing, it's it's much more about the skills and and I, like you said, for me, it's like all referrals and recommendations. And honestly, like at least 50% of the time I get an editor from the production company I'm working with, I'm like disappointed <laughs> in them. But but that has nothing to do with their mastery of, their, of the tools. No, no. Yeah. 100% of the editors that you worked with know most if not all of the ins and outs of like the different types of edits uh, i will say though it's important to acknowledge that people learn different ways and so sometimes if you're really like craving a classroom environment and you're not really into video tutorials and you need assignments and you want to ask questions and stuff those certification programs i think are probably having no experience with them i could understand why someone would be curious about it from that perspective but that is different than whether or not it is any sort of job requirement in terms of getting hired. Yeah, it won't help you get a job, but it might. Well, it might help you get a job if your professor or whatever is also looking for editors and getting opportunities for their students. I mean, I'm all for learning editing in a classroom environment and all that stuff. I think that's super helpful. Just the certification, I think, is a little bit of a relic from the past for editing specifically because we just have it's there's not such a gatekeeper paradigm for having access to the software okay so then let, let's make software the last thing then because i'm curious when you are looking at a reel deanna asked should it be her own work or should it be paid work or a combination of both i think it should just be whatever you have that looks good i mean if you've seen my reel you know i think it's nice to have recognizable faces on it if you have any even if the footage doesn't look good or there isn't much editing in it, but it's like Will Ferrell showed up for 10 seconds on this thing you like barely edited. It's to me, that's like about showing that people trusted you with like bigger projects or kind of higher caliber projects. And I can tell you some things I don't like in an editing reel. I have my, my number one pet peeve is when the entire reel is like an anamorphic aspect ratio or something like a two, three, five bars where like to me, I want to see a breadth of work. So I, I, I kind of don't want everything to be in the same aspect ratio unless it's all 16 by 9 because that's all you've done, you know? Yeah, I would say uh, I, I tend to agree with that. However, I think that is 
particular to Yorin specifically. You know, I don't think that other directors necessarily would say that. I think your point is like, oh, I just want to see a lot of different types of stuff. And this is an indicator that maybe you haven't done as much work as I'd like or something. Well, I guess I've seen but, a lot but of like, editors I, do like don't put, get hung up on it is what I'm saying. You know? Yeah. No, I'm saying like don't change the aspect ratio of like the original thing to match the clips that are before and after it, which is what I've sure. seen happen a lot. And I guess what I'm saying is that like. If you're like, hey, I really like the way this looks to have it consistent, and I think that it's jarring to jump from one thing to the next, you do you. You know, like, you may not get hired by Orrin Kaplan, but, like... <laughs> right. uh, well, if I can't tell But, but your that point of, like, done. diversity, you want yeah. you want a lot of different work. Yeah, I, I will say I don't like an editing reel, frankly. I want to watch your actual editing, unless I'm, like, looking to hire you for sizzle editing, in which case, frankly, I just want to see what sizzles you're working on. Like to me, uh, you know, I want to see scene work. So I'd rather just watch, you know, s- selected scenes or if it's a commercial, the entirety of a few spots that you've cut, frankly. Yeah. If you have a lot of short form stuff that you can show me like three different clips that are each a minute, 30 seconds to a minute long, that's awesome. If you do commercials, it's really easy to do a reel. But yeah, it's kind of like directors. Um, you don't necessarily want to watch like all the best shots a director's ever made. You want to see if they together and put a scene together and so. Get so yeah, whether it's your own work or so, not, yeah, whether it's your I, own I work or not, it matters. But to me, variety is helpful. So some of your own work and some of other people's work is great. I'll give you this rule of thumb when it comes to your body of work, whether that's in a sizzle or just like in a, a you know a web page or however you want to present it, whatever makes the most sense for you. I think that we as directors, and I think other companies will see it as well. What you are presenting should be on par with the project that you are pitching to get. And so is it okay that you don't have a ton of celebrities, for instance, or super big budget projects on your reel early on starting out? Of course it's okay. Are you going to get those big celebrity spots and the big jobs with that reel? Probably not. And so whether it's paid for high, like, paid work or your own personal work it kind of has to be commensurate with, with, with what you're pitching on and you know you, then you build relationships and as you know the company that you're working with or directors that you work with are leveling up they're kind of ideally taking you along with them and you'll you'll make incremental steps but you can't go from a really great student film but that you know feels like it's budget even if it's great to something to a Marvel movie that's just the jump is is too great basically and I'll say I just have like two other things about editing reels personally and I mean like Matt says like everyone has different opinions on this I'm I'm busting balls I'm just saying like I don't want any listeners at home to be like well Oren said this and you know even though I my instincts are telling me the opposite yeah don't don't trust your instincts trust me on this (laughs) um no but the the two other things is a, an editor's reel is not super unlike an actor's reel in which it has a much higher chance of losing them the job than getting them the job. You know, if you see an actor's reel and there's three or four scenes and in three scenes there, it's law and order, but they had one line and they did a good job or whatever. Then there's one scene that's like a lot of meat to chew and it's bad. Then you're like, yeah, we're not going to hire this actor. And with editing, this is a thing that I've seen in editing reels that kind of bugs me is when the music and the sound is not like an integral part of the edit, especially in a montage reel. Like I want to see when there's like a swell in the music, a 
something visual is happening and I do not want to see people talking without hearing what they're saying. That's like my other huge pet peeve is just like the, they call it lip flap where people are moving their mouth, but I'm not hearing what they're saying. To me, it just feels like amateurish, you know, in a, in a way. So remember that in an editor's reel, it's not just the visuals and how they're cut. It's also about sound and music. And to me, that stuff for an editor's reel is a lot more important than like graphics, let's say, you know, or visual effects or things that editors might, some people might think editors are responsible for, but in general, like I want to see how you put shots together and how you put sound and music to those shots. So that's my, my thing. But, you know, we work on specific types of things, you know, and so that's, that's what's helpful for us. But I'll also echo what Matt said, that like 90% of how I choose an editor is based on referrals and recommendations. But I think also your comparison to actors is apt because oftentimes actors are being judged not just for their performance, but for what they chose to put on their reel. So if it looks cheap or if the writing's bad or if the directing pushes a performer into something that's overwrought or melodramatic or just, you know quote-unquote not good it's better to not have it on the reel than it is to show us even hoping that we're going to see past maybe some of the shortcomings of the other departments basically and i think the same is true for editing it goes back to my my rule of thumb like you know you can't you have to punch your own weight on these sorts of things so if you've got a bunch of student projects and you're pitching on a student project Perfect. Don't worry about it, you know, and hopefully that one's a little bit better and maybe gets you some paid work and all that stuff. But it's not about who paid you. It's just about like what the perceived quote unquote quality is. Yeah. And I mean, trust me, Matt and I have made a lot of stuff that we think is quite bad and quite embarrassing and we just wouldn't put it on our own reels. So that that's it's not saying that you can't make bad stuff. Just don't put it on your reel. Yeah. Or even, you know. If you put it on your reel because you're like, well, I don't have anything else, then just know that it's going to be a limit to what you can get in the future and that slowly you have to cycle that stuff out. I should dig up my very first reel. I, I made a lot of like custom shots that were like I could make in my bedroom or were animated and were like, you know, not always bad, but not illustrating any sort of body of work. I was cheating. I was trying to make it look like I'd done more work than I, than I had, you know, or I'd done like a converse spec spot or like all sorts of stuff, all of which is okay. But, you know, it's it, my point is just that your progress will be incremental. And that's that's the journey. That's what we're trying to show with with this podcast. Yeah. Do you think someone's ever really cheated on a reel? Like just taking like a Super Bowl commercial and like an episode of Modern Family and just cut some scenes that other people had put together and just put them on their own reel and gotten a job that way. Like kind of how Tarantino had the like fake whatever film school or Harvard recommend, like, right. Didn't he? Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I, that story sort of rings about, I think that maybe that would work in the short term. I can say this, my commercial rep knows all of the directors who did those spots. Do you know what I mean? Like at a certain point you get to into the league where, you can say that you directed this spot, but we all know that Mark Malloy did. Right, so, but editing is like a little, you know, a sure, little it's a little different. That's true. Yeah, yeah. By. But but it's like, oh, have you worked at the mill? That's exciting. Why are you pitching on this smaller job now? You know, like the, it, it'll get you eventually. 
Okay, don't cheat then. Don't cheat. Final question. Software. Straightforward. Uh, if you want to be a TV editor, Avid. If you want to freelance, Premiere. Yeah. If you want to not spend any money on software, <laughs> Resolve. Um, yeah. I mean, they're all they're all great. To be honest, I don't have a ton of experience with Avid, personally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, same. The only people I ever work with on Avid are the people who are making TV shows. But the the Resolve question actually is valuable. I have never cut anything in Resolve. I'm sure that will maybe change eventually, but I've colored everything in Resolve. So I think it's handy to know the offlining process and like conform if you really want to. That's a good entry level thing to do anyway. And especially if you're meticulous and detail oriented, knowing your way around Resolve is a, a good way to kind of get your feet wet and stuff. I don't think you will be doing heavy duty editing in Resolve in the near future. That may change and, and maybe it's already happening and Please write in if you're like, hey, I just did my first commercial spot or TV show in Resolve and I'm just like oblivious to it. I think it's getting it. very popular. I think it's like the blender of editing software. At least I see a lot of people and like more like kind of the influencers, like one man band type of people like editing in Resolve. So Deanna, if you are enjoying Resolve, I'd encourage you to keep going. Just if make yourself familiar with Premiere too because if you're going to ever pass your edit on to someone else or edit with a team and it'll probably be Premiere unless you're working on a TV show or like a studio feature the, and the reason I love Premiere is because it's an Adobe product and it just really plugs in quite easily with After Effects and Photoshop and all those other Adobe tools and I just pay for all of them anyway you know and like the whole master suite for the subscription so they have really amazing student rates if you want to do that but otherwise resolve go for it i think you can import and export premiere projects yeah yeah absolutely awesome well good luck deanna keep us posted on how things go uh if people disagree with any of the things that we said please let us know because i think that i'm happy to be uh corrected in this capacity especially but in all all ways especially on this podcast cool. well before we talk to andy i just want to remind people real quick that we have a patreon like deanna begtol she's a patron and she has a Just Shoot It hat, because uh, at a certain level of patronage, $10, you get a Just Shoot It hat. It is one of the coolest hats that Matt and I have ever made together. And uh, we recommend you check it out, and it helps us keep making this podcast every week. So check it out, patreon.com slash justshootitpod. And with that, let's have a conversation with Andy Strayhorn. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check them out. Let us know how it goes. 
Did you start out doing more comedy type stuff and then get into No, starting back home, you know, shooting in the uh, my feature career in the early 2000s, it was one of those things like particularly back in Australia that this, the industry is a little smaller than it is here. So any opportunity is a great thing because it really is a pecking order down down under. And you come to the United States and it's there's a lot more Wait, What do you mean by a pecking order? Like it's Baz Luhrmann, Nicole Kidman, and then everybody else? Again, it was a different time back then, but it was more of this traditional hierarchy that the cameramen that were around, the established cameramen, were usually first cab off the rank. And, and then, you know, so you start with breadcrumbs. But I, I started out shooting horror. I shot with a couple of blokes that were commercial directors. And uh, obviously, prior to features, you shoot commercials and whatnot. And then, but drama and, and uh, long form was always my ambition. So I ended up starting to shoot little low budget horror. And then that got me to the US. And then so you, you come over here and, you know, you're, you're a very small tadpole in a very large pond. So at that point, you're just gravitating towards meeting people, hustling. Right. You so know. how far into your career, like how many years ago did you move to the U.S.? I moved officially. I moved here in 2005 and uh, late, late 2005. And the movie came over in June, July through a limited release with Lionsgate called Undead. And I just decided to stay. And it was a very, you know, it was a very interesting time for me because over three or four years prior, the commercial directors I was working with in Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne were starting to do national spots. So then there were some really nice spots coming out. And at the peak of that, I came to the US and then started from scratch over here. Did you ever fly home to uh, to shoot for them? No, because I, I I had the mindset that you know it's almost like that that Viking sort of perception of the new world, like burn the boat, because if you can't go back, you you, you know you're gonna sure. you're, you're gonna, gonna you're figure gonna get, it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because because that's the that's the thing, right? We're all filmmakers, and we all have a path at some point or another where you know you're just waiting for that phone to call. And, and you'll do anything for it. So there are some sometimes, you know, you might not necessarily be eating steak. You know, you might be eating something else. So when you start the idea of the attraction of the evil money is so easy to fall into that going, hey, you go home and shoot one commercial. Next thing you know, hey, you're around, come shoot this tomorrow or next week. And next thing you know that you'll never get back. So, it, you know, it's a good first world problems, but that I just thought if I go back to Oz, I'll never come back. And is there not, I mean, th- they must shoot TV shows and things, right? You know, I, they, they do, but it's a very different mindset. You know, I think the thing that makes, you know, it's very, it's very interesting back home. It's very artistic and it's supported by the local government. It's supported by the federal government. So here it's a business and that was the most interesting transition from australia to here the one thing that australia afforded me was because of the limitations of not only gear but time you're shooting in the pretty harsh environment for the most part it afforded me this there is this mentality that is cultural back home in australia that if you don't shoot efficiently i don't want to say fast but if you don't shoot efficiently and you cost me too much money you'll never get hired so 
I think most Aussie cameramen come out of that world of going in order to keep this gravy train going and me and to explore and keep creatively shooting and all of that. You've got to you've got to come from that standpoint. So you can do a lot with a little, and and that you know that seems to play out favorably coming to this country. So it it that hustle that you learn back there. You, you know, you come here and, you know, most most Aussies seem to do okay over here. So it's, it's an attribute that I really appreciate. But the shows back there, the gear that we have here, take, for example, I've, I've been shooting action shows for the last five years between Lethal and Lone Star, you know, cops and firemen. And, you know, we're fortunate enough. You can have a techno for two or three days, four days out of a nine, ten-day episode. So... Knowing the, the the tool isn't everything, but knowing what you can do with that tool, then it becomes a huge benefit, not only logistical, but artistic and all of that. You, you can do a lot more, you know, but back home, you don't necessarily have that it might be a fixed arm on a dolly track, you know, so it's just a, it, it's a different way of doing it. I, I was actually back home. Well, when I say back home, Southern Hemisphere, I, I shot a pilot with Mick G in 2019 for Disney ABC and and that was a you know it was a pretty expensive pilot and and uh, it was this really cool scenario about this other world within a Bermuda Triangle and um, you know it was interesting going back home to well that was New Zealand but the same mentality because Aussies and New Zealanders move you know from what country of the can-do attitude we don't have this but we can do it this way and it was just it was refreshing to see that again and you know, this kind of, well, bugger it, let's just do it, you know, like, you, you know, so that, that was good, you know. It's it's funny to hear, I think we do have a, a good number of, like, international listeners as well who are, like, thinking about moving and, like, trying to figure out what the timing is, but I love the mentality of, like, oh, because I came up with a limitation in terms of gear that then I, like, really could stretch it when I get to the big leagues, but how nice it is to go back to that mentality of like, well, let's just go for it. You know, like you don't have to have the techno crane for five days out of your, you know, nine day pilot or whatever, kind of straddling back and forth. I remember when I first came here and I was sitting in a one of the features I first started on and they said, oh, so what, what size condor do you want? And I was like, condor? What are we talking about birds for? You know, like, <laughs> you know, because we just use scissor lifts back home. Or we, or I'll even, I'll even throw it back even further, scaff towers. So that's just how we do it. You put up a 20-foot scaff tower and you put a lamp on it and, you know, you're kind of fixed, but that's, that's what happens. And that's just, that's what we were born out of, you know. There's a lot of pros and cons on both sides of the fence, but, uh, you know. It's, do, you it's, ever, do you ever miss that, though? I feel like. We, you know, you hear a lot of DPs, they have kind of everything they would ever want, you know, the Steadicams and the Condors and the Helium Blimps and all that stuff. And then they're like, I just kind of want to do that. Like, does the camera on my shoulder? Do you like to kind of bounce back and forth or do you kind of just feel like bigger is better? Well, I, 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 you know, I started, you know, when I started in the industry, I started at like the lowest position and that's not a PA. That's a, that's a cleaner in a cinema. That's where I was, I was cleaning toilets. Okay. So, 
So the little town that I grew up in, at eight years old, I went and saw Empire Strikes Back. It showed movies three times a week. And that was early 80s. And by the time I left high school, I was cleaning that same theater. And that's how I started. I thought it was in the film industry. I mean, naivety is pretty bliss when you, you know, you're malleable and you're country smart, but you're not street smart because, you know, you're not exposed to stuff like that. So so I just worked my way up through there. But I, I noticed that back home, we don't have unions. And so there's not so much demarcation as there is here. So that that's the hardest thing of grappling um, was getting used to this person can't touch this or do what I'm asking because it's not their department. And that was, oh, guys, come on, like all this red tape. But I understand why you need that. So, you know, it, it, it lends itself to a funny story that when I first came over here, one of the first pictures I did was in Miami. And unfortunately, the, the picture shut down. It never finished. Um, financing fell through. That was my first experience of that. But um, I was working with a predominantly Spanish-speaking crew. So they were, you know, Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, Brazilian, Colombian, you know, Central American, the whole thing. And so I literally just got off the plane. So I, my mother thinks I sound like an American now. So, you know, so she's heavily disappointed in my accent now. But my accent was very thick 15 years ago. And I remember saying when I got off the, you know, I talked to these ladies and gentlemen and I'd say, hey, mate, put a, put a cutter over there, mate, and put a, you know, put a 12K over here. And, and they're all chirping away on the radios. And I'm wondering, wow, that's a long interpretation of a simple sentence. And then two or three days later, the best boy grip came up to me and he said um, very slowly, he spoke very slowly. Um, we, we've asked production where might is. We don't know who this guy is, but you keep asking for him and no one's seen him. And like two dogs, we cocked our heads and I was like, what the bloody hell are you talking about, mate? And he said, yeah, that guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's, That's great. So, so now, obviously, you know, you do these these big shows. I see you're also an operator on like Westworld and Justified and some other big shows. Did Was that always something that you were leaning towards is kind of like the bigger action stuff, more big set pieces? Yeah, I mean, I, I generally, you know, I, I generally like that action and, and whatnot. And that's, you know, I taught myself lighting when I was a projectionist and an usher and I just sit and watch back then it was Braveheart and True Lies 80 times. And I, I would teach myself how to look at the shadow. And if the shadow was there, then that means the light's coming from the opposite direction. And that's how I kind of rudimentary really taught myself early filmmaking, if you will. So I was attracted to those types of films and I grew up in the eighties. So big trouble in little China and, and Predator and Aliens and, 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 you know, movies of that Die Hard was like, wow, this is what I want to do. And that was, I think I feel privileged that I grew up and I was a sponge in that era because it made so much of an indelible impression. So they're the type of shows I want to do. It's also funny to like all those movies that you named. Yeah. They're like action movies, but they're also like some of the best directors who have ever lived right like you're you're naming like the greats right like it's like john carpenter and you know uh uh james cameron john mctiernan like, yeah. sure yeah yeah i was gonna yeah. say Mel gibson yeah 
I, sure. I'll, yeah. I think he's a good director. He is good a good director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think it, that's interesting, though, that that kind of was an era where action films, there were a lot of genre directors at the height of their powers, you know, like doing some of their very best work, which is really interesting to think about. Yeah. And, and it was uh, so that's that's always kind of attracted of been attracted to that and that, you know, for right or wrong. That to me was movie making, but at the same time, you can have two two people sitting on a couch, and that's movie making as well. And I've just been very lucky. You know, I think when we all start our careers, we try to to have a path that we go down. And and for the most part, I think some of us think, well, we never want to be pigeonholed. We want to be a, a filmmaker that can do this, 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 and this. And then somehow, your credits and your your CV or resume start reflecting a path, whether you like it or not. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of big action DPs that want to do just drama, really, you know, drama and, and vice versa sort of thing. So, you know, it was one of those things that uh, I've always been kind of attracted to. And, and uh, you know, I thought, you know what, that'd be really cool one day if I could do that, you know. Let me ask, what was, like, can you think of a breakthrough project that kind of was the beginning of you getting more and more action work, right? You said the, the horror film was the one that, that got you to the States, right? But like, was there one where it was like, ah, maybe, you know, now kind of like all these action TV shows are going to start calling. You know, this is something just, I think for, you know, that just shows that you, you can get a shot at something. But when I went into Lethal Weapon, I had one hour, one episode of episodic television. Really? I just had, I had just had oh, one justified. hour. Of, yeah. And that was a that was a show you were an operator on, and then bumped up to DP for an episode. Yeah, I shot I shot one ep, and you know I went in there, and and my girlfriend asked me the other day, like who who else is up for a show, and I just you know I just said, look, I don't care, I, I really don't care who's up for the show. It's you, it's either you win it or you you lose. There's no who cares who came third or fourth or second or what have you, you know. So you you kind of just walk in there and go, look, I got nothing to lose. Obviously, very respectfully, you try to put a put forward your strengths and all the rest of it. But I really just went in with one episode and obviously some, a lot of independent films, but you're talking about, they're talking about a very select niche of action. And most producers or studios or what have you, there's solace in finding that, okay, can you do an explosion? I want to see that. And if you can, then that makes me feel comfortable and let's sit in the room and let's have a chat sort of thing, you know? So, I was just very lucky that I did a very good interview and and won them over and and then the rest was history. What you know? kind of and questions then, do they ask you in an interview like that, like for a TV show? Well, the the, the interesting thing is that usually because that wasn't a pilot, that pilot had already been photographed, and uh, you know, coincidentally, Mick G had already shot that, so it was it was nice that two or three years later I got to work with him on an, another pilot. You know, and so what happened was there was a pilot, you get to see it, and then it's more of a case of, okay, what did you think? You know, sometimes it's very interesting because we all have instincts, you know, visually. Like, you know, when you say, both of you might say, well, my version of yellow is this shape. And it might be in the same ballpark, but it might not be exactly the same. So you, you kind of go down a rabbit hole sometimes when you go, this is what I liked. This is what I, you know, I can bring to the show and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, there's there's really poker faces on the other end of that couch that don't really give much away. And you, and at that point, my philosophy is 
I would rather go in there and take a position. And if it's for whatever reason, not the right position or you tripped up, then so be it. At least you took, at least you made a choice as opposed to being middle of the road and not really having anything because sometimes people perceive that as passion. If you, if you, if you're middle of the road, then there's no passion. But, but if you go down a path, it's like, this is the way I see it. And just, Sometimes you'll be aligned and sometimes you won't. Did you have a sense of, you know, the people who, these poker faces that you're describing, did you have a sense of their interest or expertise in the technicalities of being a cinematographer? Or are you talking more about big picture stuff, the approach, how you lead a crew, what the the framing would be like, but stuff that in more layman's terms, or are you getting into like, you know, like the more technical of, of how you would approach something? Yeah, I was really lucky. I mean, I that first meeting, I had some really smart filmmakers. Like they were just really talented, and 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 the, and the showrunner was there was was Matt Miller, very knowledgeable, articulate, and just a great guy. You know, he he definitely makes you feel you're uh, you're a friend, and he's just got a warm personality. Everyone else, obviously, is very professional. You're meeting them for the first time, so they don't, you know. They don't know, and uh, and I and I appreciate they're probably meeting dozens or, or five or six people. So, so the biggest success I've ever had is not talking necessarily about the photography because I think at that point, if you're already in the room, it's because they like what they see. Now it's a matter of going, okay, do you see the universe the way I do? And nine times out of ten, particularly in episodic. The, the, you know, successfully talking about story and characters does more for you than a flashy shot because ultimately these are the parents of, of the written word and they want to see that you understand their baby and that, that you can take care of that baby and you understand uh, what, where, the, where it's heading sort of thing. But that being said, it, where it all started at Lethal, they were very – very, very knowledgeable filmmakers from shooting to story to, you know, it was a great, great bunch of filmmakers, producers, production executives. You know, I was, I was pretty lucky. So what did you say in that meeting? What, what did you say about characters and plot and story? From what I can recollect, because it was five years ago now, it was more talking about the arc of the two central characters and how they were on the surface very different but really at the core they were looking for each other and acknowledging that and and how that might be interpreted through color lens textures you know all of that and and just embellishing bit by bit with regards to that colors and 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 all that type of stuff so it was taking what was obviously something that the studio and the creators were happy with with the pilot and and what could i bring to that to continue what was already established and that being said you know when i left the interview and i the interview went i thought really well and in hindsight it it, it did but um i remember i'm a diehard nfl fan like diehard okay and i hate i love a team that everyone hates and um the raiders i remember seeing on the wall no, come on, someone who wins. And anyway, you know, okay. the Pats. Sure. Anyway, 
And uh, I remember seeing on the wall this beautiful, huge television flat screen. And I said to Matt on the way out, going, oh, mate, that's awesome. You can watch Friday night, uh, Thursday night and Monday night football here. He's like, oh, you're a fan? I said, yeah, yeah. And Matt was an Eagles fan. And I said, uh, yeah, I'm a diehard Pats fan. And, and, and he was like, oh, uh, I'm an Eagles fan. <laughs> uh, and I, I said, you know, oh, that was a close game, that, that, that super, last Super Bowl or whatever. And I walked out and I crossed the threshold, closed the door, and I thought, oh, shit. Sure, yeah. <laughs> if he loves football as much as I do, I think I just lost the job. That's right. <laughs> you know, because it's... Sure, he takes it personally. You, that's salt in the wound, right? Yeah. yeah. That's so funny. I, uh, I'm a diehard Pats fan, so I, but, I take it But you don't want to you don't want to agree with so, your yeah. cinematographer that much, right? Like, I think it's good to have... I just heard Maddie Libatique <laughs> talking about how him and Darren Aronofsky are just like constantly yelling at each other. I, I think as long as... Look, you, you're never going to get on with everyone. And, and uh, I'm working with a great producer-director right now, Brad Beaker, and... and um, on on Lone Star and and really solid producer Scott White and and so creatively we're all walking in the same direction and how you get there sometimes you're going to have a difference of opinion they want you to they might want you to zig instead of zag or what have you but it's always for the betterment of the film or the show and I think as long as everyone's walking in the same direction I think you know creative indifferences are going to happen. And that's not a bad thing. I, I want someone to have a, I can't see everything and every bit of detail. So you want someone who's looking at something from a different perspective. You know, I, right. I, I feel you also were talking about the passion. Like to me, when someone feels strongly about something, even if I disagree, it's more, I prefer that than someone that is like, yeah, whatever you want. Yeah. You know? There's nothing more disheartening than like, sure. That's fine. I guess <laughs> it's just, it's just like, Oh man. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we should just go home then. You know, I knew what I wanted to do when I was eight years old. So I, this is kind of like, you know, every now and then you'll sit back and I'll just go, shit, you know, it's like I, I grew up, you know, where I grew up was so far in the middle of the outback. There was no, my beginnings were working at a video store whilst I was working as a cleaner at a cinema. And that to me was at those early days was filmmaking. But even then, there wasn't any influence around in that area. So to me, it's like, without sounding pompous or anything like that, because, you know, I don't run into that rubbish. But to me, it's like, holy yeah, shit, yeah, I it's get gratitude. to do this. It's like the coolest. Like yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Especially absolutely. when there's like, you know, you know a super awesome camera move in front of an explosion and the guy just set himself on fire for the shot like that's incredible so speaking of i want to dig in a little bit we you know you guys do all sorts of crazy stunts on on uh 911 lone star we would love to just kind of break down you know a, a day in the life of a big set piece on one of these shows tell us how does it first come onto your radar are they do they run things by you before they're even like putting you know anything on the page or are you kind of like getting the script and saying okay well let's let's figure out how to crack this nut no yeah it, i think it's more of the second what what's happened is is that you know you're constantly the thing i like about the show i'm on is that you're constantly challenged and there always feels like there's something new that it's like oh okay this is something similar but this is something new that we haven't done or what have you so what generally happens is you'll get the script and then obviously heads of department will come together via producers and you'll in COVID we'll have Zoom meetings 
And, and do you get it before the director or at, like how, you know, are you shooting every episode? Yeah. I'm, I, last year I shot every episode and, and this year we were lucky enough to get a rotating cameraman. And so we'll, we'll probably get it at the same time, but because of the nature of the size and the scope of the show, we can't always necessarily shoot everything in 10 days because we work 10 hour days now COVID. So what happens is some days you're actually doing double ups. So what would be my normal prep time, I'm actually shooting and cleaning up other episodes. But generally what happens is everyone will get at the same time, whether it's a network draft or a studio draft or, or you know, production draft as it, as it evolves. And then you just read it. You know, you'll have Zoom meetings from there where it'll be like, okay, let's talk about the stunts. Let's talk about visual effects. Let's talk about SFX and then collectively so as when- a department. Sorry to interrupt, but when you're yeah. reading it, what are the things that you're looking out for as a cinematographer? I'm just looking out for color, light, mood. I mean, generally now what I do, by the time I get onto the set, I, I go into the, I do this on every, you know, I've only started doing this in the last year, which is really helpful to me because the pace and the speed and the scope of what we do is so, you know, you're moving at a, at a, at a clip. I'll generally just refresh myself with the sides that day and I'll just put one word and that's the tone of that scene. Sadness, anger, um, betrayal, and is that what have you. something that you're getting like from the producers, tone meeting and director or is this kind of something that's your version, your, your take on the scene? It, it, it's something my take, but obviously that is based on all of the notes in pre-production, exactly what you just said, mate, which was very eloquently put, like tone and concept and all of that, you'll hear the showrunner talk about it. You'll hear the, the, the director talk about it. And for the most part, I'll in all these initial meetings, I'll just be a sponge and I'll just listen to people talking and I'll just, okay, that's where the production design is going with this and that's where this is going. And then once I have that information, that's when I'll start interjecting and going, hey, guys, can I make a pitch? What about this and that? And then I'll go to separate heads of department and talk to costuming and talk to SFX about these needs and I want atmospheric here or costuming. This set's going to be this color. So can we avoid these colors or, or, or what have you? And then obviously then really start getting elaborate with the director with regards to how do you see it? Okay, this is what I'm feeling. This is the way I'm seeing it. And... So then by the time when I do that little default that I do every day with those one words, that to me is just muscle memory. It's just recollecting. And I try to read the script once a day, every day of pre-production. So it becomes, oh, scene 43, I know what that's about. You know, and then I work very, I'm a big stickler for time of day. Every show I've done, I'll talk to the continuity lady and or script supervisor and just ask, hey, I need the breakdown for time of day. So this might be, this scene is at 6.30 and then it's a hard cut to 7.15 and then it's a hard cut to 2 p.m. What does that look like? And and I see color in, 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 in the, to me, those times of days are very different and it's very subtle. I mean, you really have to look for it, but I mean, it's it's we're talking 400 Kelvin. It's very subtle, but for me, it makes a difference in giving it a, a worldly view rather than day and, night. You know, look, it's, you it's genuine storytelling on a show that's got such 
like time is of the essence, right? You're trying to rescue someone or save the day in some way, you know, having an internal sense from the audience of like how, how much time has passed, you know, changes the stakes and all of that. That's really interesting. I really love that. But from a production standpoint, how do you, especially when you're doing a big exterior set piece, how do you control the time? I mean, the sun is the sun, right? Yeah. I, 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 we, we just had that just the other day where we, we shot this, external um of a of an apartment and it was blowing up and you know the first responders were attending Sorry, to it and you mean literally blowing up not figuratively like you were exploding the apartment yeah yeah, yeah, yeah we, yeah. we did a, a, <laughs> it but, wasn't but, like oh this is too bright <laughs> no 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> no and and so you know you, you're in those scenarios constantly where particularly when you're downtown los angeles and you're shooting in an urban environment you've got this sporadic light through buildings and, and, and whatnot. So at that point, I just surrender to each shot being the essence of the scene. So if you're in hard light, I can't fight mother nature, particularly with this show, the creative around this show, even though editorially what goes to ca- that goes to screen might not necessarily reflect the way we shoot is that the camera is an additional member of the 126. So what does that mean? That means the camera moves with them. If they're moving, camera's moving. So, and it's a lot of handoffs. So all of a sudden you're looking at, particularly with rescues, a shot could be 40, 50 feet long, 60 feet long, and you're handing off 220, 250 degrees. Sorry, what what do you mean by that? You're handing the camera off? No, it's, it's like, okay, so this person might cross camera and you'll go with that person they'll say a line on the move and then as someone's countering, now you'll go with them and, and then you might let them overtake you and now you're over their shoulder mm-hmm. looking so, at what they're looking at. So the, the subject of the main character of the shot shifts basically as, as the energy of the scene flows from one expert to the next basically. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's And great. commonly we, we will, you know, the antithesis of what we do as cinematographers is you know, traditionally we'll do a wide shot and then we'll do a medium and close-ups and you'll keep collapsing. But on this show, we'll go from a wide shot into a cowboy or a mid shot. In one continuous you know, take so it's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so at that point, it, it you know, you get very creative with electricians and grips and I'll walk in there sometimes just because I know what the camera's seeing. You know, I don't expect a grip to know what a 32 mil lens is seeing. You know, so I'll walk in there and, and, you know, we might do a shot where the backlight looks great. And then as the camera wraps around, now that backlight's a front light and I might just feather in a double net. So now the lighting is applicable and flattering to that emotional setting for that shot. So there's a lot of electricians and grips sometimes mid shot going, Hey, start putting a, a wire in now on that 18 K and start doing this. And just, so all of a sudden you're the feathering dance of in. It. Yeah. That's it's a wonderful. bit of a dance, you know? Yeah. So, so that, that's a lot of fun to me in, in, in that sense, in, in, you know, knowing that, yeah, we got that, you know, and we can go from a, a wide shot to, you know, shot here. And it looks great. And is the 32 mil your usual kind of like POV shot, like one of the members? point of view yeah i i think i think probably the 32 is our workhorse and then we, you know we might jump into a 50 or a 65 and 
but those cameras, those lenses are usually our workhorses and anywhere in between that because of we don't want to isolate the characters so much that they you disappear from the their environment. So we want to fill them in the environment and particularly action works better for the most part. Explosive action works better wider, closer. You know, so you want to feel that immersiveness of the of the of the, of the environment. Yeah. You know? How many cameras are you guys shooting with? Well, the other night we we shot with nine. Oh wow! And, and is is there yeah. a, a difference in the approach between you know a dialogue scene or maybe one of these ones that you were talking about before, where there's like a ton of transfers and there's not a ton of space for gear or anything like that, versus you know a big expensive one-off explosion? Do, do you how do you kind of parse that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of it comes down to is you know. The creative, uh, you know, the PD, and I, I kind of tend to agree with him. Sometimes real life is, whether I'm talking to my girlfriend or what have you, you'll be doing, you'll be multitasking. You might be doing something at the same time you're having a conversation. So the belief is sometimes, for the most part, people are doing stuff and moving, even though the the the, the conversation might be something heavy. And then they'll settle and whatnot, just so you don't have a three-pager where you're just sitting, you know, because that gets really boring and you, all of a sudden you, it's working against what the energy of the show is sort of thing. But that being said, the approach is, is different in the sense of when shooting the effects, and since we're a fire-based show, I, I'm more working from the reverse of going – I need to light to a certain level in order to protect the flame. So obviously you look at daytime, you look at an explosion, it looks fantastic. Why? Because you're shooting, you're around T16. You might ND down and shoot at fours or five, six or whatever, but at a deeper stop, you have that really rich color rendition. When you shoot in the out in the street at night at T2, it's going to white out. So it's all about trying to protect that flame. So when we get to the, emotional and grounding um, scenes you're not lighting to that stop so you can you can take a very different approach in intimacy but at the same time i like to light in a way that allows the characters to go hey if you want to stand there stand there if you want to then midway go through and sit here do that so you know so it allows them to go that they can just be in their head as opposed to technically where do i have to go sure yeah yeah you never have to say, I'm sorry, uh, you're in the shadow and we're really making sure that the explosion looks awesome, guys. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, we're <laughs> lucky I, enough know, that our, our leads, you know, they sure. really understand camera. You know, someone like Rob who's been, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a, a veteran, you know, and, and, and uh, he understands where the lens is. And we have a very, two very, very good operators with Bryce Reed and, and um, Dean Moran. And, 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 you know, sometimes if, if a camera's feeling it, he'll just start pushing and Rob will feel that camera moving in his periphery and hold that look or hold that stare. So it's that trust and dance that you do as you develop time and just working together and all that type of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so fascinating. You know, we've been doing this show for a long time and I think this is the first time we've ever had a conversation about uh, exposing for explosions. You know, uh, which is uh, I'm a stickler for it, and I'm always the worst person in a production. Going, guys, no, I'm not shooting an explosion at 4:30 because I'm gonna, I'm gonna be at T. You know, the, the sun's gone, so I've lost 
a lot of that ambient or because it's behind buildings or what have you and I can't protect the integrity of the explosion you know but that being said if we were at night and, and say for example the pilot that we did last year it's interesting because certain cameras that are closer to an explosion I will underexpose knowing that because of where that camera is in that initial blast that's going to be early on editorially so I will ex- I will expose for the pulse uh, that's that interesting. Well, hold on. Let's break that down a little bit because I really love what you're saying here. So you're saying that the exposure level is dictated by what you perceive the editorial sequencing of these shots will be. And so you can kind of hedge your bets a little bit. That's really, really interesting. So you were saying the closer ones you underexpose because you think they'll be first? Yeah, because, right? Great. because they're so close, unmanned, obviously. They're so close to the explosion that really the only usable part of that is the initial igniting and and obviously a lot of that stuff too we the closer the camera i'll usually run higher speed because it's so instantaneous so at least they can use those extra frames and elongate obviously the the spectacle of it all and and just they have that option whether or not they want to or not depending on the tone and the emotional current that the showrunner wants to continue through that scene. So it's just options. But but generally, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And then the further you are away and you're feeling it, then chances are you're going to use that camera once you're at the peak of the explosion. You know, as opposed, and you're looking at a two or three stop difference, four stops difference from that, doing that to that. Mm-hmm, you know? Right. Yeah, the big explosion. I love what? that. What's the cheapest camera you guys use? Yeah, yeah. Are there yeah, GoPros, iPhones, DSLRs? Yeah, we, we've we've used uh, some GoPros. You know, I try to destroy them as much. You always try to put them on, <laughs> but they, they they're resilient little things. They just they you know, keep on ticking. Um, we do use uh, Sony A7, particularly if it's like going in the water or or something like that. We'll put it in a housing. But um, generally speaking, it's the Sony A7. You know. Yeah, it's kind of your your crash cam basically yeah exactly yeah. mate. Yeah. exactly yeah. yeah what's your main camera uh we run four minis ari minis alexa and so the 3.2k resolution you, you're not you, yeah i mean I, I i kick it up to that when we do effects and so forth but uh, particularly if we are setting up for an explosion and we have a condor base in shot or whatever and it's a lock off or what have you um but generally speaking we we just 2k oh you interesting know? Because we're crazy. still the delivery's 1080. Yeah, that's crazy. Because it's these I, I giant budget I, I network shows, and I know they're shooting compared to like these tiny indie films. Are shooting. Yeah, I know it makes no sense, but uh, you know, I guess also too, as much as I would want to use those extra information, it also comes down to money with regards to. I know this sounds silly, but how many cards? How long are we downloading for and all of that, which sounds really silly, but the, the volume of footage that we shoot. Right. If you're shooting nine cameras, yeah, that's yeah, a lot yeah. of cards. Yeah. Yeah. But also it's kind of, you know, more evidence that resolution isn't really that important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's always nice if you want to reframe and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, to me, it's, it's all about color and that curve. As long as, you, you, you know, you've got the best curve to to render that color and, and manipulate it to me, that's, that's everything. Yeah. 
Well, and that also makes sense then that you're more comfortable cutting between like Alexa Mini and an A7S, especially if you're just using a, a couple frames here and there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's that. That's really interesting. I mean, we average. I, you know, I'm just coloring an episode right now. I mean, we average a thousand to twelve hundred cuts for forty two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's wild. And we shoot a hell of a lot. We shoot. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, because it's all again in order to create to, to give the option to the showrunner and the director is 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 those options of is it this person's point of view is it this person's point of view is it what are we saying in this scene having that ability to shape that depending on where we start in act one to act six i just want to know how often do you ruin a camera how how long do you burn one? oh we haven't really destroyed one yet it's destroyed a set of legs really okay a car took one out so um, oh, okay yeah but well, that uh, makes sense that makes sense but yeah not, i wanted not. you to be like oh man we fry one a show no big deal <laughs> no because ultimately as much as that sounds cool i then have to answer to people about <laughs> yeah yeah for sure yeah, yeah the, the camera body may be cheap but that glass isn't and yeah you know, oh yeah wants to be thrown away thousands of dollars every episode yeah. yeah sorry so now to oren's much more thoughtful and mature question i'm curious about <laughs> how you guys approach dialogue scenes i think as uh as a director and we've had a lot of tv directors on the podcast and you know we talk a lot about how there's a language that a show sets up right you kind of talk about the um like law and order like there's these certain shows that you know they always have like a dolly you know with that's doing an establishing shot they have like a steady cam and then they have like some long lens sniper type thing that what like what's your what's the language in 911 in uh in lone star like when you're doing just a dialogue scene generally speaking you know the way i approach it is that you know we we play with a shutter angle when we're out and about and the camera's moving for the most part. And, and and so there's this heightened reality to adrenaline of being out there. You know, I mean, when you really think about it, first responders, amazing people, every single one of them, they're usually seeing us at our worst, which is, I, I, it, it's an commendable job that they do that, you know, day in, day out. And so, but when they come home, they're like you or I, where they take off their turnouts all their uniforms and they're normal people with normal problems. So at that point, things become very grounded and relatable with regards to, you know, what they're going through. Now, I think part of the success of this production company and whatnot is that it deals with most parts of the community, genders and so forth have a voice. And, you know, with in each character, we, we have that. We have trans, we have gay. We have multinational. We have all of these. So all of these little things that pop up for each character, we try to address at some point or another. So these are very socially important conversations that need to be had that I think is is part of the strengths of the show is that they talk about it on network. And so when we approach those things each and every time, there's a uniqueness to it in the sense that we don't want to give it a cookie cutter uh, scenario, but we just go off what feels right. So if it feels right to be steady cam, it's steady cam. If it feels right to be studio and crane or dolly, then it's that. You know, so it's very much the fun part of this show is when it's action, it's action. But when it's 
you know, two people talking and you're getting really to the core of any show is about relationships. And when you really get two people talking, to me, that's sometimes I really enjoy that the most because now you're getting to the crux of what makes people tick. You know, so it's kind of like what feels right for this, you know, and I try not to really heavy hand and put a, a and enforce anything on that other than, you know, the way we go about doing this, we'll read the scene first. It'll usually just be the first assistant director, scripty, myself and the actors. And then as we do that, we just read it. Then they'll start throwing things around and I'm just observing all this. And then we'll this is it. in the space that you're going to shoot it. Correct. And then we'll do it, put it on its feet, and then they will start exploring with the director. And only, only if it's a problem for me, I might say, "Hey, can we not? Is it okay if we don't stand over there or what have you? Because you're wearing a dark uniform against a dark wall, against a you know, it's not ideal." But other than that, they'll play the space, and then they will do. There's a lot of leeway for the characters to feel the environment and feel the space in which they. They're, they're talking and discussing. And sometimes out of that, it's really just instinctual. A lot of this is instinctual based off, you know, I, I, you hear sometimes the actors say, you know, I read it like this five days ago, but now after seeing it, I feel like I should be over here doing this. So all of a sudden, you know, anything could be turned on its end and you need to adjust and need to move and need to acclimate to that and all the rest of it. So sometimes that might be, an actor saying, you know, I feel like I don't want to give them my full attention. I'm having a conversation, but, you know, they've annoyed me and I want to keep doing things that I'm doing. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to put this away. And then I'm going to go over here and put this away. It might read as though they're sitting and talking, but they're like, no, no, no. I'm not happy with you because of what you did to me the last scene. So I'm not going to give you my full attention. I'll give you my minimum amount of attention. So now all of a sudden, now you're moving. So there's a lot of that, which I love, just basic storytelling is when you have actors in wardrobe on the set, no matter what I perceive as being signature shots, there's something always really exciting about going, just seeing how someone else sees the world and going, okay, so what do I need to do in order to capture that honestly without forcing my hand? You know, and that to me, the, 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 all the movies that either one of you guys like, when you see really good performances and acting, chances are the, the camera's really just letting them do what they need to do in front of it. You, you know, because, you know, one of my favorite movies that I usually watch before starting a season of any show is I'll watch Heat. And it's amazing when you see the famous scene that everyone says they weren't in the same room, but Kate Mandolin's when Pacino's talking to De Niro. And you can tell that they they, they shot that multiple cameras because the performances. But you're so engaged for five minutes of these guys just trading barbs and trying to one-up each other. Camera doesn't do anything. It just sits there. But you've got, you're, you're so drawn into these two guys talking very quietly around a busy restaurant where people are eating and dining with loved ones and all the rest of it. And it's like, hey, if I see you around the corner, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to shoot you sort of thing. And it's just all the camera's doing perfectly is capturing that. And it doesn't need to add anything to it because 
the performances are doing it. And I think that's the interesting thing as a cinematographer is knowing when to move and when not to move. Because really, it's your forum at that point as directors. Because if the if the if the performance is there, really the camera is just capturing it. I love what you're saying, but is there is there no mandate that you need to have like? a master shot and coverage in a scene. Like I know from like Matt Barber, he's always like, you know, even when, even when he's giving me edit notes, he's like, uh, this is a perfect time to cut to a close up or this line is really important. Can we be close on this character? Be like, Oh, we don't really have it in close. And, oh, should always get a close up. Yeah. Our showrunner, our showrunner and our creatives love close ups. They, they love close ups. And, you know, generally speaking, there'll always be a wider frame. But it might start off wider and, and then the character might overtake the camera and now brings us into a loose two or something like that. But there's always good – there's always, you know, I think you always need to know where you are. Now, does that mean traditionally we need to be so far back? And No, but you can – we generally will do shots where we might start on something, someone picks something up, and now they're exploring the space, which in turn is giving us a wide. So – yeah, absolutely. But definitely a, a signatures for us is always close-ups because because of the nature of the way editorially we cut, it's always about getting to the emotion. If we are having to sacrifice frames to, to fit 43 minutes, then it's about getting to what is that character really thinking and let's really see their eyes and feel what they're, what they're doing. How much as a cinematographer are you thinking of transitions, like how this shot is scene is going to cut to the next scene? I always think, it, to me, when I break down a script, I know that the meat of, of, the, of the scene will, might change here, might go there and all the rest of it. But I always think, okay, it feels right that we end on a mid-shot. So let's start the next scene on this type of frame, a wider shot, or we finish on a close-up, then let's use this wipe to then go to the next scene sort of thing. So to me, in and out of each scene is really important because then that gives a cohesiveness. Otherwise, it's a jarring hard cut from scene to scene to scene to scene. And you can really tell when that happens because it feels like there's no visual storytelling. There's no thought necessarily in how these collection of scenes and we will on average you know we'll, we'll we'll have anywhere upwards of you know 40 50 scenes you know yeah yeah you're cranking yeah i want to talk a little bit more about the nature of collaborating with all of your different department heads right because you were alluding to before you know shows like this they're big elaborate machines people are shooting all the time you're kind of jumping between different episodes you're cleaning up an episode last week's episode and you're prepping for next week's episode and you're shooting this week's episode all at once right and also there are in the case of the fire you know people's lives on the line right so there's a lot of things that have to go perfectly and also you've got that artistry in mind as well so i imagine the collaboration between yourself special effects vfx and production design and stunts are all that's got to be, you know, that's a five-headed monster right there that you all have to kind of be on the same page. And talk to us a little bit about the way that that collaboration between those departments in particular work. And I guess editorial as well. So it's really the whole show, I guess. I say. Right. <laughs> I, I, I think that for those types of things, it's it starts early on, on, you know, with regards to the prep with and those meetings, those Zoom meetings. But for the most part, we all kind of have an idea palette wise 
for the design and art direction, costume-wise. Stunts, obviously, and and, and uh, special effects is obviously the anomaly from from episode to episode. But other than the initial conversation, which is basically just hearing where everyone instinctually wants to go with it, then seeing the locations on the director's scout, then applying conversations, whether it be independently or via email, with regards to, okay, now that I've seen the space, now that I know where we're doing it, this is my input at this point. But generally, it's a very, unfortunately, it's a very expedited time period. Because of the size and scale, what usually takes precedence are the big set pieces because of logistics. So once you're into that, unless something really pops out, it's individual emails and conversations either on a director scout or at the office with the guys who, hey, listen, guys, this is what I'm thinking. Let's have get on the phone. Let's have a quick talk about this and, and that. But it would be nice to have longer times, but because it's such a big beast, you're really attacking the problem that's in front of you, you know, for those types of big set pieces. So that takes most of our time and energy in, in pre-production. And we try to, particularly anything that's that I know after shooting the show for 15 apps, you know, that I know is going to be a problem or what have you, I'll address. But otherwise, I just know that, no, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine sort of thing. So, you know. Yeah, so you're saying it, the the approach is oftentimes dictated by the location and the needs of the scene, right? It's like it's like okay, well, you know, we know we have X amount of space. It's you know, it's open air, so it's it's safe to do an explosion here versus when you decide to say maybe do it. You know, it's it's like practical versus you know special effects, basically. A- absolutely. I mean, to to give you an example, we, uh, episode two hundred three that aired some time ago was a was a fire. And, you know, a bushfire sequence and and the the whole app and and that was very heavy SFX. Obviously, we're in California, we're shooting for Texas, so we're trying to avoid mountains, trying to avoid uh, palm trees. Oh yeah, every operate don't point the camera towards that palm tree, you know. And that was really a sense of going, okay, with visual effects, how far are we? It was it was working out how far am I to the line? Let's say the fire line. So I would always ask the director going, okay, how far away? Are we a mile away? Are we three miles away? At that point, a lot of my coordination, because when you start working heavy with atmospherics like smoke, there's a point where it it actually starts robbing you of exposure. The more density you have of smoke, then the darker it starts to get. So it's a very fine line between having enough there to feel the environment and to feel that, okay, I feel the presence that there is a fire over that ridge and this is how close it feels. So at that point, I'm coordinating with SFX, particularly on that episode, hey, guys, I need smoke there, there, and there, you know, and and working out with them, okay, the wind in the valley is coming down this way, so if we're not seeing over here, can we put it here because chances are this will give us the greatest use of it. So it's it, at that point, it's dealing with that plus with your sun seekers and whatnot, the sun. So we always have that little bit of smoke and mirrors, so to speak, where I can backlight the smoke and it can give me the illusion of a lot more density. Well, and, and that, that's that's all so fascinating. On a television show where you're the DP in your shoot, you said you just you've shot 15 episodes so far. 
you know, uh, and you have a guest directors kind of cycling through, how do they interface with you on decisions like that, for instance, right? Where you're, you're thinking about the way smoke affects the stop and where it should be placed so that you can get a backlit and things like that. How do you work with them on that? How does that collaboration work? Generally speaking, it's been a really great experience um, thus far with the, the, the talented male and female directors we've had. But generally speaking, you know, they, I think anyone coming into this world, it's just a big hungry beast. Like it will eat you alive. So there's so much that, you know, is to be you want to worry about and then so much that we're going look you guys are seasoned you're the band of brothers you know mm-hmm. you, you've walked in wherever the- you want that smoke yeah. it's fine yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of trust at that point prior to that and i i spend a bit of time just talking my favorite part of an episode is just sitting and talking to the director on the on you know in their office just sitting in chairs and going how do you see it how do you see this this scene here I'm thinking about and just spitballing, and that's where there's no pressure. You're, you're at least a week and a bit out, so you can actually creatively just speak openly and just go, "Okay, now I know where they're at, and this is what I'm thinking, and this is, you know." And as we get closer, after hearing all these conversations from them, I'll start putting together equipment lists and going, "I think it's best if we use cranes here, and I think this might be better if we use this here." you know, like drones here or what have you, and just get their idea before I put it in and go through the pipeline with the office and all the rest of it, just so it feels like, okay, creatively, we're, we're, we're in sync as we go into this unknown. And then basically at that point, it's more of a case of no, they know what they're getting into, that it's like, hey, uh, you know, I really want atmospheric here or what have you there that will help us and, and so forth. So generally speaking at the beginning stages of prep to me is is the most freeing part of an episode because you get to candidly just speak openly without the pressures of time and money because they haven't come down on you yet so when you speak like that then you know if there's something liberating about it, just speak it as artists tell me how do you see it you know and then i can basically shape them from there going hey just letting you know this is the way we work on this show this is what's. This is the strengths. These are the weaknesses. This is what we can do really well, and this is what we can do in the time limitations that we have. Just so you know, you know. And most directors, particularly with these types of shows, they'll come in very planned with regards to, you know, the set pieces and all the rest of it. You know, if you can survive the set pieces, getting into the uh, into the drama is almost liberating. You know, you get to breathe and be creative, you know, on a different level. Right. I know we have to wrap up soon, but I just, my last question is kind of just building on that, um, what Matt asked and what you just talked about is, you know, you when you're a guest director on a show like Lone Star and, it, you know, the DP has shot every episode, um, you know, pr- probably one of these, I, I think Bradley has directed half the episode, so he probably knows the show inside and out, but you're one of these directors that only gets one episode, there's this kind of balance between, you know, the actors know the characters probably much better than you do, and they're probably going to know the drama and the emotional stakes more than you as the director. The cinematographer probably knows much more about how the, sh- you know, the shot selection, the momentum, the framing, the camera movement than you. How does the director, can a director still like kind of put their mark or have their vision? Or or are you finding that 
a lot of times someone is pitching something. Oh, let's do this. The camera's, you know, turning, doing like a a barrel spin as we go in here. And you're like, well, that's not. Yeah, there's a bit of, th- th- that's a good question. There's a bit of that. I mean, I've been lucky enough to work with some really talented directors that have come through. And there has been one or two times where they were like, you know, I like wide lenses. And I said, well, no, we don't put a 21 mil or, uh, you know, a 25 mil three or four feet away from our lead actors. We just don't do that, you know, and, and, uh, you know, because so it's th- not flattering. Yeah, it's not flattering, and it's just it's just not the show. And and so there is that, you know, part of when you get hired on the shows that all the shows that I've done is the insurance policy for the showrunner is that in the absence of the PD that you will protect the the con- continuity of the show. So I've been lucky enough to move with Brad and, you know, Brad and I have a great relationship. He's just an awesome guy, very creative guy. I'll go do stuff with him and, uh, you know, I'm just so used to shooting 270, 300 degrees and I'll ask him, hey, Brad, what don't you see? Uh, okay, 360, Brad. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know. so, but there, there is that element where sometimes some directors feel comfortable and safe with what their go-to scenario is. If they're up against the clock, if they're up against the daylight, if they're up against, you know, actors' availability, just get me a wide two shot and a single. Well, we don't really shoot like that. The operators know how we shoot. So can I suggest this? I can get you this and this at the same time. I don't mean cross coverage. I mean, but I can get you this and this at the same time. And then that can develop into this. And and that way, trying to translate what and what they have into what the show is because ultimately I need them to succeed in order for all of us to succeed. So if they don't succeed, then we, none of us win. You know, what, what I'm hearing here and I, I love this so much is that like, I think your point of when, when we're in crunch time, everyone kind of falls back on what their instincts are. What's the safest, quickest way to get me out of this danger zone. Right. And I think, for some of us, like that is like, okay, a master and two, two crosses and we're done. I know at least it's covered. The scene will move on. But what you're saying, and I think this is the better instinct, is not just what's my default, but my default should be, hey, let me talk to my team. I bet there's a really smart way to get through this. If they understand that I'm in crunch time and I'm feeling some pressure here, there's there's the right way to do it that that's not the formulaic boring way to do it basically and that if you collaborate relatively quickly you can get past that and into something more interesting yeah absolutely and 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 i think that uh i think that's you know you you always because we all know this that that i think anyone knows that regardless of what happens we can always anyone in the filmmaking community can get a wide a two shot and a single (laughs) you know hose it down hose it down and the hardest thing to do is, without using the word hose it down, let's hose it down, but do it in the way that we shoot the show. Now, what does that mean for me? That's more pressure on my end to light in such a way, particularly when it gets difficult when our characters wear black turnouts, they have the fireman helmets, and lately we've been doing very heavy smoke and fire, so now they've got the scuba mask. Right, so, so all of which the, the ramifications are... There's no definition on their figures, and there there's no light. Like the the helmet is blocking their the light for their eyes, basically. And there's a wrap around, right? So actually, I am curious, how do you light the show? 
Well, just put uh, LED light inside the scuba. <laughs> Rest is CG. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, it, it's been a, it's been a development of it of with regards to the look and 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 whatnot. We we have this kind of semi bleach bypass feel to it, but generally speaking, when you're in that type of scenario, I, I use a lot of light because a lot of our contrast comes in the midtones, because we have such high contrast values already black pastel design you've you've already got your highs and your lows so you don't need to really touch those all of the contrast comes in in the midtones so by lighting up the midtones now you can crunch them down and all of a sudden you look at a shot and you go there's contrast there but i see detail in the fabric and that's how you get that so what we end up doing is you know for those types of scenarios is you know big 12 buys or 20 buys and bouncing light into those and they're just wrapping around so whenever the scuba masks or the the helmets you know underneath the helmets and you see them it's just wrapping around them so you don't see a singular source that would be seen as a reflection you're just it's just wrapping around them it's just big big giant bounces yeah, yeah. so like that book point, light style a little bit yeah right? and, and at that point you're kind of floating a lot of stuff just above lens so i'll use condors in a way where I'll have bounces and lights literally just above lenses. So you can move around, but you'll never see it. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Well, Andy, we could talk to you all day. We'll get into some schematics. We'll, we'll pull out some top downs, but we should probably let you get back to shooting hit television shows. Before we do that, though, we'd love to ask you to hang out and endorse with us real quick. No worries. Unpaid endorsements. <laughs> So my unpaid endorsement for this week uh, is actually inspired by this conversation. It's a tiny bit of a curveball. Uh, have you guys seen the movie The King of Staten Island? It's on HBO Max. And look, I've always loved Judd Apatow. I'm a comedy guy. But there have been some totally valid criticisms of him, especially from the cinematography perspective. Robert Elswit shot King of Staten Island. And it looks pretty great and I think is a very interesting way to look at a film and see that it's got certainly a look and like has some feeling and has some style but also gives the characters room to do the same sort of apatawi riffy linorama stuff without feeling static right like the thing that was always kind of limiting from those early movies is that they would just shoot cross coverage and they'd have Steve Carell say something crazy and then they'd have, you know, Paul Rudd say something crazy and then they keep doing that and then they cut the best lines together and the camera never moved, right? And I feel like uh, King of Staten Island has found a way to keep the energy of those movies but make it look a heck of a lot better. And also it's got a, a fireman storyline as well that's pretty good. So yeah. That's Pete Davidson's dad is, was a fireman that passed away yeah, in September 11th, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so uh, also, I never thought I would say this, but Pete Davidson is legitimately good in that movie. I've heard that. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a an evolution know. for that guy. I know. Look, there's nothing he can't do. He, you know, also check out some of his, like his stand-up as, like a, as genuinely like a 17-year-old kid is incredible. Like yeah, he was, yeah. He's as like a, stand -up a perfect stand-up comedian. He's, like, he's Good. So good. Yeah. But now he's an actor as well. And Robert Elspeth is shooting his feature film. So sounds cool to me. Uh, so King of Staten Island is on HBO Max. Uh, give it a shot. I, I just saw the other day the, uh, I think it's the trial of Chicago 7. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's 
guys, it's fantastic. And Sasha Baron Cohen, wow. I mean, yeah. he's amazing. Very nice. Very nice. And yeah. and <laughs> when you're dealing with a subject matter that's predominantly in courthouses and courtrooms, it's incredibly gripping with Aaron Sorkin's dialogue that you're literally sitting there going, wow, this is just, I mean, it's rapid fire conversations, but it's so well done that it, I was surprised. I, I actually loved it. I thought it was, uh, and he, and obviously the, the award season has started and he won an award recently and, and totally justifiable, you know, like he's, he's incredible in it. Incredible. You know, so that's uh, definitely worth a watch. Yeah. May, maybe tonight. We'll see. <laughs> uh, Kaplan, what you got, buddy? Yeah, well, tonight I'm watching the WandaVision finale, which I know Matt is not watching. <laughs> so I, I guess I'll triple down on these uh, nominated movies. I just watched Judas and the Black Messiah last night, which I, I really enjoyed. It also looks great and stuff. Kind of a story about the Black Panthers in Chicago, which I had, had zero familiarity with. And the movie, the movie's good. I, I enjoyed it. But what really made me like it a lot more was uh, HBO has these little extras that if you kind of scroll down on the interface, you can find of just interviews between the cast and the filmmakers. And I watched one with Lil Ray Howard, Lakeith Stanfield, which I always thought his name was Lakeith, but they kept calling him Lakeith. So I'm very wrong about that. And, um, and the two guys that came up with the story, Kenneth and Keith Lucas, uh, which do you know them, Matt? They, uh, they're actually like, they come from comedy. They're these twin brothers. Oh, wait, the Lucas brothers? Yes. Wait, for real? Yeah, it's there. Oh. They pitched this concept to Shaka King, the director, slash writer, yeah. Yeah, I I used to work with those guys back at Comedy yeah, Central. They're, they're like, like comedy, comedy Central. They're guys. like like stand up comics. They're twin brothers. They're, they're like, like identical, they're... the most identical twin brothers you've ever seen. In the interview, yeah, they're really funny. They're like they're they're these twins, and they finish each other's sentences. <laughs> and uh, it's it's really it actually it kind of made me like our podcast a little bit better <laughs> because I was like, this movie was good, but it when you get these, you hear Lakeith talking about his conflicted character and how he got into character and you talk, you hear about the guys that kind of pitch the concept. It just, I don't know. It just rounded out my whole experience, especially nowadays when we're watching all our movies on a TV in our living room and we have our phones and our laptops and our family. And and you can't talk to people afterwards the same way. There's not that conversation out front of the theater. Yeah. 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 It gave me that experience. So if you do watch it on HBO max, which you should do ASAP because I don't think it's going to be playing there forever. um, Check out the extras. And then another uh, endorsement that will probably be out of date by the time you hear this. But I, I don't know. Somehow I got into this Facebook group that like helps people get vaccinated for for COVID. And you know, there's like there's a lot of different difficulties in getting vaccinated. You know, there's a lot of uh, neighborhoods or people that don't have internet access that don't, or a lot of people that are you know in the older age group that don't um, have access and so um, I've just found a lot of really interesting ways to find vaccine appointments. If you are have a family member or someone that is eligible for a vaccine and is having trouble um, in California, the main website is myturn.ca.gov, and probably everyone knows about that one. And half the time you go there, it says there's no appointments available. But there's another one uh, that was just made by some coder named vaccinespotter.org. It scans all the pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, right, and everything. Um, and tells you who has appointments right now. And so, I don't know, maybe by the time this episode comes out, which is what, 
two or two weeks from now, maybe three weeks. Maybe everyone in America will be vaccinated by then. I had this theory that maybe uh, people wouldn't want the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And so they would just like offer it to everyone in Hollywood. And then all sets, you know, someone would just go to every set and just like vaccinate everyone. Johnson and Johnson. But who knows? It's an ever changing thing. But it's it's a great resource. VaccineSpotter.org. So that's it, Andy. What's if people want to learn more about you? I mean, obviously you're on IMDb, but is there do you uh, tweet? Are you on Instagram? How how do we know what you're up to next? I started Instagram, but uh, I'm not on there all that often. I'm, I want to see some explosions yeah. on that Insta. Yeah, yeah, AndyStrayhorn.com, and my DP Andy Strayhorn is the um, system shots up there and whatnot. Um, I need to update. I haven't updated since COVID because I had so much time on COVID. So sure. I, I started <laughs> uploading stuff. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so that's, uh, yeah, you'll see some bits and pieces on there, mate, if you go to DP Andy Strayhorn on Insta. There's some explosions there and whatnot. Well, if you want to check out all the stuff that you, we talked about on the show, you can go to justshootapod.com. Uh, we'll have links to Andy's Insta and his website and everything there uh you can follow us across all social media at just shoot it pod instagram is blowing up that's especially great and while you're thinking about the computer and the internet follow us on spotify that would be great and i am across all social media at mr matt Enlo. i'm uh, on instagram at ocaplin on twitter at smitey pileg and if you have any questions email us just shoot it pod at gmail.com and this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda, our social media master is Derek Aiello. Our consulting producer is uh, an Australian, by the way, Ali Kornfeld. Good day, and, Ali. Good day. Uh, the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Thanks everyone. everyone. Thanks, Andy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. 
Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.